<laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to Divorcing Patriarchy. <laughs> We're podcasting about the rise and fall of patriarchy and documenting the mad exodus. I am your committed host for this journey, Dr. Maya, La Mariposa Guerrera. Here, we form a community of individuals in the metaverse who have made a conscious decision to divorce the patriarchy and to choose an identity and a life of thriving outside of the patriarchy. We are thrilled to be in community with you in the Divorcing Patriarchy Metaverse. We appreciate your positive ratings and show comments. Now, be sure to click on follow in Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or sign up to become a subscriber at www.divorcingpatriarchy.com, and you'll never miss an episode. You can always re-listen catch up on any episodes you may have missed, or binge all of the Divorcing Patriarchy episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or you can go to www.divorcingpatriarchy.com and click on episodes. Okay, today you need your Divorcing Patriarchy journal, preferably a pencil over a pen and a glass of water. We will be working from both an intellectual and spiritual space. And when you work from a spiritual space, it's important to drink water. You know, water is equated with healing and energy. And our bodies are composed of 55 to 60% of water. Your senses will be stretched today, so you will need to be well hydrated. All right, let's do a review. Now we define patriarchy as a complex structure of 10 pillars of interconnected legal, social, cultural, political, and economic systems. These systems are economy and work, education, family, food or agriculture, government, health, law, marriage, military, and religion. When we refer to the patriarchy, we're talking about this superstructure or any or all of these systems. The patriarchy isn't a person. It's not a gender. It's a superstructure of power that organizes and operates to protect and privilege its primary beneficiaries males. The problem with patriarchy is a problem of inequality. The critical project of the patriarchy is to be and to maintain absolute power. Now both males and females can be agents, beneficiaries, males as primary beneficiaries and females as secondary or benefactors of the patriarchy. The existence of the patriarchy depends on two things, 
one, agents or individuals willing to be in its service, and two, that there are no competing structures that threaten its dominance. Although the patriarchy has been a dominant structure around the world since the existence of settled agriculture, like all structures, what has been constructed can be deconstructed. Now to divorce patriarchy, you need to do four things. One, you need to make an informed decision to break from an identity formed from the structure of the patriarchy. That's why we're here. We give lots and lots of information. We do our work and we work hard together to educate ourselves, to be in an intellectual community, to understand the logic of the patriarchy. That will inform any decisions that you make in the future. And then there's the informing part that you have to do on your own to understand your own identity and how it was formed from the structure of the patriarchy. The second thing you need to do is you've got to decide and actually break from being in service to the patriarchy. The third thing is commit to a life outside the patriarchy. Those steps will begin your journey. And lastly, just take the first step. This is the process that we're talking about when we say divorce the patriarchy. And we do this process to divorce each of the 10 pillars of patriarchy. I've been obsessed lately. I'm in search of people with depth of courage and integrity. We live in a world where we're facing difficult situations in our food supplies government, health systems, environment, our schools, homes, in our families and with our spiritual practices. Where are the people who can lead us through these thick and snarled dark matters? People with integrity and courage, you know, champions, where are they? It's overwhelming sometimes. I consume information from lots of different sources in print, web, research, lectures, news, court cases, television, podcasts, books. I consume a lot of information on a lot of different topics. We got problems. And lately, these problems seem to be stacking and growing. And you know what I don't see a lot of? That's right, you know where I'm going with this. There's not enough depth of information about people who live with integrity and courage. My dad, one of my greatest teachers, told me to look for people with integrity. He said that it's one of the most valuable qualities you can find in a person. And then he said that few people possess this quality. Well, with these problems stacking up and Because we're all affected, it follows that as global citizens, we have a duty to work together to solve some of these problems. I'm obsessed. I'm in search of integrity. Who's got it? I want enough people 
to create a web of interconnected, light-filled persons with integrity rooted in courage. Shout out to Michael Beckwith for the working metaphor of an interconnected web of light. This leads me to my current thought. Is one born with integrity or is it nurtured? You know, nature versus nurture. I think the makings of integrity are within all of us. Integrity developed over time requires constant attention and nurturing to become deep, layered, and complex, like a beautiful rue. We can develop our own integrity, encourage it in one another, and we can teach about integrity. But ultimately, every day, you choose who you are in the world and how you're going to show up. But in our search for integrity, we did find something uncommonly special. We found out that there are some who walk among us destined to lead us in moments that demand great integrity and courage. Let me tell you a story. It's time to come close. A little closer. Come on in just a little closer. I want to tell you something. I know a woman. She's a metaphysician who believes that your birth name is your superpower. She says it carries the encode of your spiritual DNA with information about who you are and the trajectory of your contributions to this world. Your name has an energetic charge that amplifies your character, strengths, and weaknesses. The power of your name when invoked conjures universal vibrations as powerful as a music chord that echoes the arc of the songs of your life journey from origin to destiny, songs that foreshadow and songs that communicate the dynamics of your story. The precise moment you lean into your name, its meaning, its intention, and the texture of its vibrations is the precise moment that triggers magic, where you tap into your superpower to become the fullness of who you are. In that space, the fullness of who you are meets the fullness and the readiness of the universe. Many cultures around the world understand the power of a name, parents carefully consider, weigh, and deliberate the choice of their newborn's name. These choices are influenced by sentiment, tradition, and spirituality. In Yoruba communities, babies are given a name describing the circumstances of their birth. In Western culture, newborns are given a first and middle name, sometimes just because it sounds pleasing, other times 
to carry a family name generationally forward. And when it comes to the patriarchy, names become a matter of capital. Quick cross-reference here on the social, cultural, and economic capital episode from season one. The names become a matter of capital for its beneficiaries, a property right, a birthright, an asset as capital to buy, sell, or trade. Think of family dynasties and political and religious first families. To the patriarchy, a name, particularly the surname, is a marker that represents power and status. And that power and status is only conferred upon its primary and secondary beneficiaries. I read this really great article from The Wire called The Strange History of the Bastard in Medieval Europe. The article historically tracks the origin of the term bastard and suggests that the stigma of the term's original meaning comes not from a child being born out of wedlock, but from a child being born from a lineage lacking economic and social significance. In other words, the patriarchy assigns a person to their brand of social and legal implication through the lineage of their name. That patriarchy surname, well, it belongs to them to assign blessing or burden. But your birth name, that's a contract between you, God, and the parent or special person who God bestowed the honor upon to name you. When the heavens whisper your name, it will be in divine time. Some of you will rise to meet the moment with courage. You will accomplish great things. You are destined to bless the world right when they need it most. Magic in the making. What if you were able to observe the unfolding of that magic in real time? Would you watch with wonder? What do you believe when you saw it? Can you conceive of the moment where your destiny whispers to you by name? The divine ripple effect you will create in the universe will alter the course of humanity. And we call that universal flow. To others choosing or who have chosen a life and an identity outside of the patriarchy. We owe the others a debt of gratitude for taking that magic carpet ride. Others named Fanny. The name Fanny means free one. Its French origins include the diminutive name Francis. That was my grandmother's name. In Spanish, the name becomes Estefania or Stephanie, meaning crown. In Yiddish, the name is anglicized as Fagel or Fea, meaning bird. Throughout the course of human
throughout the course, throughout, why is that word hard? Throughout the course of human history, there is a clear evidence trail of women named Fanny who are inextricably bound to a moment in time where they fully committed themselves to showing up as an embodied force of freedom, where freedom had been denied to all but the patriarchy. Okay, I just want to list off a few amazing women named Fanny. Fanny Brownbill was an Australian state politician and the first woman to win a seat for the Labour Party in Victoria at a time where others in power did not believe that women were suited for politics. Fanny used her political power to champion for women, children, and seniors. Fanny Hertz, a German-born British educator, was a dialogue leader and advocate on issues that advanced opportunities for women to receive an education in reading, writing, math, and needlework, rejecting the policies that single-tracked women to prepare for a life of domesticity as wives, mothers, mistresses, and servants. Fanny Allen was the first woman from New England to become a Catholic nun in the state of Vermont, demonstrating an unflinching courage to worship her God in the way she felt convicted to do so at a time in history and from a family where she had to stand on her rock alone. Then there was Fanny J. Crosby. She was an American Methodist rescue mission worker, a poet, lyricist, and composer. She was a prolific hymnist, writing more than 8,000 hymns and gospel songs, and became a household name by the end of the 19th century. They call her the queen of gospel songwriters. She was a strict abolitionist and was the first woman to speak in the United States Senate as she read an original poem and advocacy for the education of the legally blind. Fanny Raoul was a French writer who challenged the patriarchy through a career of prolific, unapologetic writing. Fanny Kimball. She was an English actress, writer, and abolitionist. While staying on her husband's plantation, a slaveholder and heir to cotton, tobacco, and rice plantations in Georgia, on Butler Island and St. Simon's Islands, she kept a private journal of her observations, documenting the conditions of the slaves. When she spoke to her husband about her witness to the mistreatment of slaves, he threatened to deny her access to their two daughters if she published any of her observations. Well, their marriage failed and she lost custody of her children and not reunited with them until after they turned 21 years of age. During the American Civil War, she did publish those journals. Fanny Balbuck was a prominent Noongar Wajuk woman who lived in Perth, Western Australia and demonstrated an unwavering commitment to protect Aboriginal land rights and resisted the British colonization of traditional Noongar lands. And then there was Fanny Carrillo. 
she was a leader of the women's suffrage movement in Uruguay, believing in the right of women's vote and against narratives that positioned feminism as anti-male or anti-family. The threads among, between, and through these eight global figures that span time and space form an anvil forged with the Herculean strength and courage of women named Fanny. And there were others. I want to talk to you about three more women with the superpower name Fanny. Fanny Eisenberg, Fanny Lou Hamer, and Fanny Willis. Miss Fanny Eisenberg, or Fega Orenbuch, was a Holocaust survivor, born on December 3rd, 1916, in Lutz, Poland. Ten months after Miss Fanny married, she gave birth to her only daughter, Josiane. And in May of 1940, during the Second World War, Germany invaded and ultimately occupied Belgium. Nearly 25,000 Jews were deported from Belgium to Auschwitz, most of them murdered. Research from the United States Holocaust Museum cites that fewer than 2,000 deportees survived the Holocaust. Fanny Eisenberg was one of them. Through the Belgian resistance movement, she hid refugees in her attic and made the impossible decision to separate from her one-year-old daughter to place her into hiding so that she could have a chance to live and to be free. She wasn't permitted to know where her daughter would be or who she would be with. Following that decision, Miss Fanny and her mother were beaten by the Gestapo and taken to the Auschwitz deportation camp where she and her mother were placed in separate lines and she never saw her mother again. At Auschwitz, Miss Fanny became a part of a small group of women who encouraged each other and helped them to endure their loss, the beatings, forced labor, and other Holocaust atrocities. It was five painful years later that she was reunited with her daughter and Miss Fanny spent the remainder of her life until she was 101 years old testifying about what she witnessed during the Holocaust and teaching others to stand against hate and anti-Semitism. There's another Fanny that I want to introduce you to. Her name is Miss Fanny Lou Hamer. I don't know about you, but I've been to the Mississippi Delta once. Mea culpa for the cliche, but I did meet some of the kindest strangers I've ever met there. If you're molded from the city suburbs like I am, the Delta will shock your sensibilities. 200 miles long, 87 miles across, at its widest point and encompassing approximately 4,415,000 acres of land. It's a place where, as you stand, you are no more special than an average stock of corn. The flatland, strong enough to tango with tornadoes, will effortlessly swallow you up if you dare it to. Yet, the bodies of African-American children, men and women, 
were forced to stretch across the delta to domesticate the land for the profit and riches of the patriarchy. First, through human exploitation of slavery, and then through the economically exploitative system of sharecropping. Now, sharecropping has and is practiced globally in Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America. In the United States, after the Civil War, sharecropping seceded slavery as a system of agricultural labor where landlords would contract with tenant farmers to lease a portion of land in exchange for a value of the crops. Under this system, the tenant farmer would work the land and receive a share of the value of the crop, less charges for seed, tools, tenancy, and food. The system was rife with price manipulations, which indebted many sharecropper tenants from harvest to harvest. These landlords were largely the same individuals who just months and years before were the slaveholders of the now tenants, who were just months and years before slaves. After plantation owners were forced to sever their stronghold of human exploitation through the Civil War, it's not a difficult logic leap to understand that the new system with the same old players in the same old place wasn't going to produce a different outcome other than human exploitation. The sharecroppers were living under poor working conditions that kept them in a poverty trap. It was a rigged system. But what other choice existed in the South following the Civil War? To live, to eat. Where was a black person supposed to go? How were they supposed to survive? As compelling testimony to how life can force the hand of change in the inertia of oppression. A once child laborer on a sharecropping plantation in the Delta, at the tender age of 45, became a catalyst to end the sharecropping industry's 62-year reign. Her name was Fannie Lou Hamer. She was a force for social change. All she wanted was freedom. All she wanted was to be a first-class citizen amongst equal citizenry. The best place to begin to know Miss Fanny might be at the crescendo of her life, following an 18-year period of sharecropping on a cotton plantation near Ruleville, Mississippi. In this season of her life, she built a serious career as a voting rights, women's rights, civil rights activist, and community organizer during the violent era of Jim Crow, which were racial segregation laws and formal and informal policies. Everyday life for blacks in Mississippi was a sentence in perpetuity of embodied hardship. And then the most extraordinary thing happened. The intention of disruption from community organizers introduced Miss Fanny to the promise of change through democratic participation of voting. She said, they talked about how it was our right as human beings to register and vote. I never knew we could vote before. Nobody ever told us. We hadn't heard anything about registering to vote because when you see this flat land in here, when the people would get out of the fields, if they had a radio, they'd be too tired to play it. 
So we didn't know what was going on in the rest of the state, even much less in other places. On August 31st, 1962, Miss Fanny was denied her lawful right to register to vote after failing a literacy test, a discriminatory practice adopted in many states, including Connecticut, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and South Carolina, to obstruct the rights of immigrants, the poor, and those without access to education. And in Southern states, African-American and Native Americans' right to vote impeded their democratic participation in the communities they lived and worked in. Typically, the tests were made up of 30 questions, which had to be completed in 10 minutes. Some states focused on citizenship and laws, others on logic. Okay, fascinating fact. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 makes the use of literacy tests as a prerequisite to voting unenforceable. Yet even today, literacy tests are a part of the North Carolina Constitution. In fact, under House Bill 44, North Carolinians will vote on November 5, 2024, about whether they will repeal this language through a constitutional amendment in a statewide general election. True story. In the mid-1960s, Duke Law Professor William W. Van Alstyne conducted an experiment in which he submitted four questions found on the Alabama voters' literacy test to U.S. constitutional law professors. The professors answered the questions without the use of any reference aids, just as other voters were required to do. Out of the 96 respondents who submitted answers, only 30% were correct. In preparation for the podcast, I took a previous Alabama voting literacy test. I, I got dizzy and gave up. Anyway, I digress. Miss Fanny's attempts to register to vote was a complete disruptor to the patriarchy. It, dis- it destabilized the system locally and nationally. That's when the real trouble began. She was fired from her job of 18 years at the plantation, extorted, threatened, harassed, shot at, and assaulted by racists, the Ku Klux Klan and members of the police, while trying to register for and exercise her right to vote. Undeterred by the harassment of the devil, Miss Fanny was determined to meaningfully participate in democracy and to support others in their pursuit to exercise equal rights under the law. She said, if I fall, I'll fall five feet, four inches forward in the fight for freedom. I'm not backing off. We've been waiting all our lives and still getting killed, still getting hung, still getting beat to death. Now we're tired waiting. I was forced away from the plantation because I wouldn't go back and withdraw. You know, my literacy test after I had tried to take it, I wouldn't go back. I know lots of people in Mississippi who have lost their jobs trying to register to vote. Nobody's free until everybody's free. One day I know the struggle will change. There's got to be a change. Not only for Mississippi, not only for the people in the United States, but people all over the world. Miss Fanny was forced to leave the plantation she supported. After Miss Fanny... After Miss Fanny was forced to leave the plantation, 
She supported thousands of African Americans in Mississippi to become registered voters and helped hundreds of disenfranchised people in her area. Three months later, when Miss Fanny took and failed another literacy test, she told the voter registrar, you'll see me every 30 days until I pass. And one month later, on her third attempt, Miss Fanny became a registered voter in Mississippi, only to discover her county required voters to have two poll tax receipts before they would be allowed to vote. After the right to vote was extended to all races through the enactment of the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution, many states required a poll tax as a prerequisite to voting registration. In some states, they were a part of the Jim Crow laws. Often, these laws included a grandfather clause, which allowed any adult male whose father or grandfather had voted in a specific year prior to the abolition of slavery to vote without paying the tax. Proof of payment of a poll tax was a prerequisite to voter registration in Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and Texas. Miss Fanny eventually paid the poll tax and received the poll tax receipts. She captivated the nation and rose to national prominence as she testified before the Credential Committee at the 1964 Democratic National Convention on behalf of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party she co-founded to stand as the official delegation from the state of Mississippi. The active disenfranchisement of black voters was a high-stake conflict of national significance, gaining the support of Martin Luther King Jr. and rising to the attention and political gamesmanship of President Lyndon B. Johnson. Miss Fanny's nationally televised testimony was so compelling that President Johnson attempted to silence her by strategically disrupting her speech with an impromptu press conference. Miss Fanny's eight minute and 12 second televised testimony was interrupted because of the speech that President Lyndon B. Johnson gave to 30 governors in the White House East Room. It was a speech about just about nothing, but most major news networks rebroadcast her testimony later that evening to the nation, giving Miss Fanny and her organization a lot of exposure. Okay, this is important. Section one of the 15th Amendment of the United States Constitution states, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Section two gave Congress the power to enforce section one through legislation. When Miss Fanny spoke, people listened. She told the country about the deep aches of trying to register to become first-class citizens and subsequently arrested, jailed, sexually assaulted, and nearly fatally beaten by police and under police orders by cellmates. Her colleagues were jailed and beaten. She said, all this on account we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, 
I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off the hooks because our lives are threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? In the years that followed, Ms. Fanny went on to co-found the National Women's Political Caucus, where she emphasized the power women could hold by acting as a voting majority in the country, regardless of race or ethnicity. The people have crowned her the mother of voter registration. I want to introduce you to Ms. Fonnie Willis. In the Northwest Quadrant of Washington, D.C., is a historically black college and university, Howard University. It has been there since 1867, and since 1867, the university has churned out unforgettable and unabashed changemakers. The highest ranking female in the United States history, first black, first Asian, and first woman, Vice President Kamala Harris, civil rights leader, and the nation's first African-American justice, Thurgood Marshall, American novelist and the first black American to win the Nobel Prize in Literature, Toni Morrison, whose books teach freedom and confront freedom's enemies. She found language to speak truth to power in ways that arrest its readers and demand a resolution of the visceral cognitive dissonance that surface. That's why her books find themselves on so many banned school lists under a pretext of one thing or another. Polly Murray, Isabel Wilkerson, Sonia Sanchez, Emmett G. Sullivan, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Zora Neale Hurston, Stokely Carmichael, Elijah Cummings, and so many others. But I think the most notable Howard University graduate is now Fonnie Willis. She is the first female to serve as the Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney, a graduate of Emory School of Law. After serving the public as a prosecutor in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, serving as Chief Municipal Judge in South Fulton, Georgia, in 2020, she was elected to the seat of District Attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, the first woman to hold that office. Can we just have an honest dialogue here? We can't be worried about stepping on toes. I need you to listen to me. A beneficiary of the patriarchy has lost his mind. He had all the power, all the power. In plain sight, the patriarchy lost control of one of their own, who's now trying to break democracy and sell it to the highest bidder, foreign and domestic. The patriarchy homies can't figure out how to stop the derailment of outlaws off the tracks at 250 miles per hour, almost one mile for every year the United States of America has been in existence. I have read about and then watched the very system that the outlaw was created from try to rein him in I have read about and then watched the very system that the outlaw was created from try to rein him in 
by my count for the past 59 years, they can't do it. They cannot figure it out. And in a fantastic unfolding of a fluid federal republic and the only country with a continuous democracy of more than 200 years, we are witnessing the courage of someone born and shaped outside of the patriarchy coming to rescue the patriarchy. Coming to the rescue of the patriarchy to protect the free world. They call this person with the courage of conviction, District Attorney Fonnie Willis. The 45th president of the United States has been criminally charged in Fulton County, Georgia for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. He is accused through the legal system of trying to nullify the votes of Fulton County citizens. Fascinating fact, the United States Census estimates that in 2022, 45% of the Fulton County, Georgia population was African American. The detail of the charges aren't the point here. And whether you may be persuaded of the efficacy of the charges cannot be known before the trial has occurred. The story here that we are witnessing is a collision of two opposing universal paths. I mean, can you stand to watch this without putting your fingernails, popcorn, or a fine crystal glass of dark liquor in your mouth? The history of voting in the state of Georgia is replete with voter disenfranchisement. In 1907, the governor of Georgia signed an act to amend the state constitution to impose a literacy test as a prerequisite for voting and included exemptions for white citizens to vote even if they failed a literacy test. Grandfather Clause became a part of law in 1908 and it stated that any union or Confederate veteran or their descendants could vote. Georgia women could not vote until 1922, and the state did not ratify women to vote under the 19th Amendment until 1970. States continued to disenfranchise citizens, particularly black citizens, with literacy tests, poll taxes, and other voting laws or practices until the passage After the 15th Amendment of the United States Constitution, states continued to disenfranchise citizens, particularly black citizens, with literacy tests, poll taxes, and other voting laws or practices until the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was an act to enforce the 15th Amendment to the Constitution. It was signed into law 95 years after the amendment was ratified. It outlawed the discriminatory voting practices adopted in many Southern states after the Civil War, including literacy tests as a prerequisite to voting. It was at this point that African-Americans could register and vote in large numbers. There are Georgia residents living today who were voting disenfranchised Georgia voters prior to 1965. The United States Census counts the population of Fulton County, Georgia, in 2020 at 
1,066,710. Now check this out. On August 7th, 1971, Miss Fannie Lou Hamer spoke at an organized, peaceful student demonstration against the Vietnam War amongst a crowd of white and black citizens. That demonstration was held at Hurt Park in downtown Atlanta, Fulton County, just over six months after Miss Fannie Lou Hamer's house was bombed. Increíble. Don't miss what's happening. Don't miss this. What's happening now is that voting history has reached an apex in Fulton County, Georgia, and the 45th president attempted to resurrect voter disenfranchisement. And now, District Attorney Fani is representing the voters of Fulton County, Georgia, 45% who are African Americans and protecting the hard-earned right to vote. So, <laughs> yeah, I've got Fani Fever. She's a mother from Southern California. Her father was a Black Panther. She lived in Washington, D.C., graduated from the esteemed HBCU Howard University, and an alumna of Emory University School of Law. All things we could connect with over a good meal. But the reason I have Fani Fever is because I am a great respecter of the magic of the universe and of God's plan unfolding. I am a great respecter of the courage that it takes for one to live up to the call of one's destiny. She is fearless because she just may have been born for this moment to stand in the gap for voters, for democracy. Because her name is Fanny or Fanny. Standing for freedom. She is exactly where she needs to be in the moment she needs to be in, doing the thing she was born to do. We're just lucky enough to have a front row seat. District Attorney Fani Willis is standing in the gap for the long arc of justice that Martin Luther King Jr. at Washington National Cathedral spoke about when he said, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Fanny Eisenberg, Fanny Lou Hamer, and Fanny Willis. What does it look like to support courage and integrity in a showdown between those who choose to show up for courage and integrity, for freedom, and for democracy? Who will you support? Have you considered whether or not you are living up to the full potential of your name? I have Fanny Fever because through extraordinary trials, these women have carried the torch of freedom for us, for you, for our dreams of freedom. Won't you join me in honoring their journey? Won't you join me in valuing their gifts? Until next time, be well in your journey. 